Hi, friends. We're still off this week, but please enjoy a sample of the new podcast, Chutzpah. Hunters presents true stories of resistance. This six-part docuseries highlights people who did heroic things during the Holocaust. The podcast is executive produced by Jordan Peele. October 7th, 1944. Auschwitz-Birkenau. Vicious Nazi death camp. It's the afternoon roll call, the deadliest time of the day. A Nazi guard inspects a row of nervous prisoners. Suddenly, without warning, an explosion erupts. Auschwitz is under attack. A rebellion has erupted outside crematorium number four. Quickly, a Jewish prisoner strikes an SS officer with a hammer. Another bravely whacks a crematorium guard and races ahead. After months of planning, the Jewish Sonderkommando and a small group of prisoners have begun the resistance. As the SS scramble in confusion and anger, a second, bigger explosion erupts. Amidst Nazis shooting and prisoners running towards freedom, a young teenage girl in a nearby camp work office gingerly glances up at the fireball. A tiny smile creeps across her face. I'm David Weil creator and executive producer of the series Hunters on Prime Video. I was inspired to create the series because of my grandmother, Sarah Weil, a Holocaust survivor. When I was young, my Safsa started telling me the stories of her experiences during the war. To me, her heroism felt like the stuff of comic books and superheroes. During one of the darkest, most horrific periods in human history, there were ordinary people who made the choice to resist standing up and fighting for the common humanity of their fellow people, doing what many of us would consider impossible. Hunters is inspired by the heroism of survivors like my grandmother and of heroes and resistors like these. The stories you're about to hear are true, and the words and many of the voices you'll hear belong to the heroes, survivors, their families, and friends. This is Chutzpah, Hunters Presents, True stories of resistance. And this is the saboteur. Nineteen thirty-nine, young Anna Heilman, born Hanka Weitzblum, was barely eleven years old when the Nazis arrived on her doorstep in Warsaw, Poland. The youngest of three daughters, born to deaf parents Jakob and Rebecca Weitzblum. Anna and her sisters grew up middle class in Warsaw. Her father ran a factory that employed fellow deaf workers making wooden handicrafts. As a young child, Anna is blissfully unaware of the hatred fomenting in neighboring Germany. Growing up secularly Jewish, Anna and her family regularly celebrate the high holidays, but little else defined her Judaism. She attends a Catholic all-girls school where Jewish and non-Jewish children played together peacefully. Anna has a beloved nanny, Isabella, and considered her upbringing extremely happy, even a bit spoiled. Here is Anna herself. My mother and Isabella were seamstress par excellence. They used to make pattern from newspapers. And my mother and Isabella used to go to see Shirley Temple, then come home and recreate her clothes for me. So I was walking around like Shirley Temple, but with dark hair. But by 1940, there is no ignoring the growing whispers permeating Warsaw. 
Hitler and his army are restricting all Jews to the east side of the city. A wall is abruptly erected, creating a Jewish ghetto. Anna's father is forced to give up his job. Anna is abruptly cut from the school roster and forced to homeschool. And the family is restricted to living inside their home. Frustrated with the sudden withdrawal of their freedom, Anna and her middle sister, Astusia, join the Jewish youth group Hashomer Hetzair, a group whose name translates as the Young Guard. This was a ragtag group of young teens and 20-somethings that begin to daringly plot secret resistance against the Nazis. The group hated their Nazi occupiers, and they were not deterred by fear. The seed of the resistance started at this big conference. There were uh, several different youth organizations in the ghetto. I myself was familiar with Shomer Atzair. Uh, we were not going to go without resistance, and this felt very good and very frightening at the same time. Uh, my sister was still in the ghetto, and it's uh, one of the big fights and the big resistance movement. We ran with one of the runners from Shomer Atzair through the canals, through the burning ghetto at that time. The Germans were methodically exploding and burning all the buildings in the ghetto, one building after another. We jumped from the third floor windows into the rooms, but the smoke was so intense and people were jumping from all over the place that they were shooting indiscriminately. And we succeeded to run when we had scraped knees and elbows and nothing else. One night, Anna listens in rapt attention as two young Jewish students report mass killings of Jews in the eastern city of Vilna. Terrified, Anna rushes home to tell her parents. But her father refuses to believe her. These two young men, they were telling us about the atrocities that the Germans were perpetrating upon the Jews, about the mass killing of the Jews in the Vilna ghetto. And I remember, then I came home and I told my father about it, and my father dismissed it completely and said to me, don't create panic of these warmongers and uh, don't disturb your mother. Whether he knew and tried to deny it, I couldn't tell you. And whether my mother knew, I couldn't tell you. But we knew, and I think that this was the beginning of the seed of the Warsaw Ghetto Rebellion, this particular meeting. Days later, Anna's eldest sister, Sabine, flees Warsaw for Russia with her fiancé. Anna and Astusia, not wanting to leave their parents, stay behind with them in Warsaw. They sneak out nightly on continual resistance missions alongside other Hashomer Hetzair teens, fighting back the Nazis. The order of the day from Hashomer Atzair was that we are not going to be taken alive. You know, we are not going to be allowed to take on the transports. And I was all hyped up with it. I knew that this is exactly what I am going to do. We are not going to go just like that. So uh, there was just a conviction. We are just not going. That is, until the Warsaw Uprising. Attempting to oust the German army, the underground Polish home army, Armia Krajowa, and young resistance groups, including Hashomer Hetzair, strike back 
in an attempt to liberate Warsaw. It is the single largest resistance effort to oppose German occupation in World War II. But the insurrection fails. Many of the youth that Anna knows pay with their lives. We didn't have uh, telephones, we didn't have uh, walkie-talkies. Uh, so young boys were running from one post to another to tell them what the story is. And in this particular uh, group, there was the commandant of our big group by the name of Shimon Heller. One of the messenger boys was running on the streets and was shot. So Shimon ran after him to pick him off the street and he was killed on the spot. Following the Warsaw Uprising, conditions in the Warsaw Ghetto deteriorate rapidly. Residents are forced from their homes nightly, rounded up and sent to Auschwitz. This is the moment that forever alters Warsaw. As distinguished professor of Jewish studies at American Jewish University in Los Angeles, Michael Berenbaum explains. In 1944, Jews were isolated, segregated, and ghettoized. And from the 15th of May to the 8th of July, 437,402 Jews were deported on 147 trains, destination primarily Auschwitz. Four or five of them were killed upon arrival. Anna, her parents, and her sister Astusia are forced to the Majdanek concentration camp near Lublin, Poland. Anna describes the nightmarish condition of their leaving in great detail. Our train came to Majdanek, and as we came out, half of the people were dead and half of the people were mad. It was raining when we arrived to Majdanek, and the Germans with rifles and dogs barking were waiting for us, and again there was screaming and yelling, out, out, out. We had to jump. It was quite high from the wagons to the ground. And I remember I leaned down to scoop up a little bit of mud to, to quench my thirst, and I got a whip on my back, and the screaming was run, 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 and we were running. And we came to a spot where a young assessment called me. I left my mother and I went over to him and he pointed with his finger to go in to the right. And I went to pick my mother up and she said, no, no. And my mother went straight. And this was the last time I saw her. I was taken to a sauna, which is a German for a washroom. The men and women were separated as we came from the trains. I lost my father right then and there. And in the sauna, I have found my sister, whom I have lost on the way. So the two of us were there. We were told to take off all our clothes, but we could take our shoes. Went through cold water showers, and we were given some clothes to wear. We were taken into the camp. Those were wooden barracks, brand new. It smelled wonderful with fresh wood, and there was nothing else there. We slept on the floor. And every day we used to go out on appels, which are the roll calls. And we were working in the field. And I remember uh, we were asking, they were all Czech prisoners, we were asking them where our parents were. And they were very kind. They used to tell us that we are young and strong and we work hard work, but uh, our parents have easier work somewhere in other camps. And we believed them. But Anna's parents are already dead. 
they were murdered upon arrival. The sisters are soon transferred to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Here again is Michael Berenbaum. We have one word which epitomizes the Holocaust, and that's Auschwitz. Auschwitz I was a concentration camp primarily for Polish prisoners. Auschwitz II was Birkenau, Auschwitz-Birkenau, and that was created later in the war. It was created as a death camp. Anna and Astucia serve in the forced labor units for the camp, kept in a cell block of women in lice-infested, inhumane conditions. Astucia gets sick with a high fever, and Anna is terrified she'll lose her. Anna, too, struggles with infections, open skin boils, and other ailments. She is subject to repeated body inspections. During the inspections, the Lagerelste, the inspector, examines the women and sends any who present as sickly off to the gas chambers. Each time, Anna fears she'll be sent away. But miraculously, both girls survive. Overwhelmed with emotion, Anna deeply questioned why. Well, the answer would soon reveal itself. Anna and Astucia are among a group of young women chosen for an important job in Auschwitz. A job that will change their fate and alter both their lives forever. We were told that we should volunteer for a, as a metallurgist. We didn't know what metallurgists were, but we decided we were going to be metallurgists, my sister and I. We were assigned to work in the munition factory, and Estusha was working in a pulveram, which means gunpowder room. There were six girls working in this gunpowder room. Working a job that made you useful was one way certain prisoners stayed alive in Auschwitz. One such job was munitions, where machines and manual labor made armaments for the Nazi army. There were six girls assigned to the gunpowder room, but 16-year-old Anna has no munitions training and zero background in metallurgy. She worries her supervisors would find out and she'll be violently punished or killed. Out of earshot of the supervisors, however, one of the munitions girls shockingly whispers a confession. None of them have experience. Anna breathes a deep sigh of relief, and this bonds the women together. I think that everybody who lost a family needed to replace it. Friendships and taking care of somebody other than yourself made a great deal of difference. Together, the young women quickly teach themselves how to use the munitions manufacturing machines, turn gunpowder into ammunition, and check the tiny markings on component pieces from the factory. Day after day, they ignore the choking yellow dust from the machines that nearly suffocates them. They're just happy to be alive. At the end of the day, Anna, Astucia, and the other girls form a small nightly group. After work, you could go to each other's block. There was a period before the curfew that you could go and visit each other. And we used to meet. There was a group of girls that used to get together, tell stories about each other, sing Hebrew songs, dream of Israel. And somehow we lifted ourselves from the reality of the camp into the fantasy of our meetings, and they became more real to us than the reality around us. One night, Anna and Astucia share wild stories about their involvement 
in the Warsaw Uprising. The young women are amazed at their chutzpah. Anna and Astucia then suggest a new idea. They should do the same thing here. They should fight back. During those uh, meetings, we were telling the girls uh, that came from different countries that we come from Warsaw Ghetto and that the youth in the Warsaw Ghetto revolted. And we are in the same position here now that if we have to die and death was inevitable, then we have to die with a meaning. Not far away, near the gas chambers in Crematoria, a small group of Jewish men, the Sonder Commando, likewise meet in secret. The Sonder Commando are Jews given the horrific task of hauling out the bodies of their fellow prisoners who were gassed in the gas chambers. Professor Berenbaum explains. The Zunder Commando were intimate with the killing process. They had it emotionally far worse than anybody else because they were seeing people murdered day in, day out. And these were people sometimes who they knew. These were fellow Jews. And they had nothing, as it were, that they could do to stop the process except the act of resistance. Without a doubt, the Sonder Commando were forced to work one of the most horrific jobs in Auschwitz. Sadly, within a few months, these traumatized men were replaced and sent to their deaths in the gas chamber as a new group took their place. The Sonder Commando had a thoroughly compromised existence. They use a language when they speak of themselves. We had a mechanical existence. We were automatons. We stopped having feelings. We shut down. When the gassing was at its most intense, they were most needed. When there was a lull in the gassing, they had no job to perform, and they could be murdered. By October, there is a lull. And the Zunder Commando realized that they are next to be killed. And therefore, they have to act because if they don't act, they're going to be killed. And they know it, and they have no illusions. No illusions whatsoever. In October 1944, this particular group emphatically agreed to strike back. They know their days are numbered. Better to do something and fail than do nothing at all. Now, this was not simply ambitious or daring. This was outrageous, unthinkable. An operation this high level would have a significant likelihood of failure. But the men are determined. Their goal? Avenge the murder of millions of Jewish lives, including many of their own families. Strike back at the Nazi killing machine. Hit them where it would have the greatest effect. But where would that be? The Sonder Commando daringly decide that they will blow up the gas chamber and crematorium. But they couldn't do this alone. They would need the cooperation of others. They need the wherewithal to engage in resistance. This is where the women come in. There were women who were working in a union carbide factory that had access to gunpowder and explosives. And the question was not whether they have access to it, they have access to it. But they were enormously supervised and looked after because they understood they were dealing with something very dangerous. They were indispensable to the uprising because they gave them the tool with which to set the crematoria and the gas chamber aflame. 
One of the men inside the secret resistance group of the Sonder Commando quietly approaches Rosa Robota, his girlfriend. At the time, Rosa is the informal leader of the munitions factory girls, including Anna and Astucia. He tells Rosa that he suspects he and his fellow Sonder Commando are scheduled to be executed soon. Rumor is the Red Army is advancing into Poland to join the Polish Home Army and enact an onslaught on Auschwitz. He is sure that the Nazis will kill all of the prisoners before the Red Army could reach them, rather than risk having witnesses who could testify against them. They are likely living on borrowed time. So the time to act is now. Rosa devises a plan to smuggle gunpowder out of the plant. She presents the plan to the munitions factory girls, Anna, Anna's sister Astucia, a young woman named Clara, and two other women, Regina Safferstein and Alla Gertner. Despite the high risk, these scrappy young women agree. They can't let their allies be killed, and they cannot wait until it's too late. They're all in. Taking advantage of their unique position, the girls devise an ingenious strategy to sneak out explosives from right under the noses of the Nazis. Sushia used to take out a little bit of a powder and put it in a piece of cloth. So we would signal to Allah. Allah and I would meet in the washroom and divide the powder between us. Day after day, the young women would smuggle bits of gunpowder inside a tiny bit of knotted cloth. The cloth is hidden inside machine debris, garbage that Astucia, who sat closest to the door, would hand to Anna daily in a small metal box. Anna would carefully retrieve the tiny knotted cloth bits, wait for the signal from one of the other girls in the pulver room, then meet Alla in the toilet room. Both girls would stick the tiny knotted cloth with gunpowder into their bras. Now, Anna is just 16 years old. No one suspects that these young women would be remotely capable of resistance, let alone against the Nazi army. They are the perfect saboteurs. Each day, the girls would carefully conceal the tissue-wrapped gunpowder in their bras and march back to the barracks, silently praying that they would arrive safely or the daily gunpowder collection wouldn't be lost. The journey back to the barracks was fraught with danger. No one could fall or pass out lest they all be caught with gunpowder. They walked several miles back to the barracks each night, the threat of death lurking with each step. It was about three or four kilometers between our factory in Auschwitz to Birkenau. And from time to time, there were searches. So we always made sure that we were never at the beginning of the column or at the end of the column, that we're somewhere in the middle. So that when there was a search, we used to take out the powder, take it out from the Kleenex, throw it on the ground, and wipe it with our feet so nobody could find it. If the girls were lucky enough to bypass inspection for the day, they would carefully transport the gunpowder safely into the barracks to be collected by Rosa. Rosa would then take it to an area near the barbed wire fence where her lover in the Sonder Commando would retrieve it. A small success. Day after day, these young women brazenly risked their lives to smuggle gunpowder in their bras. After several months, the women had supplied enough gunpowder that the Sonder Commando felt it was time to attack. 
But now came the most dangerous part, putting the plan into action. October 7th, 1944, Auschwitz-Birkenau. Without warning, the Sonderkommando attacked the Nazi guards outside crematorium number four. Using crude handmade grenades made of shoe polish boxes filled with the women's gunpowder and a wick, the men catch the guards by surprise. As the Nazi guards scramble to react, the Sonderkommando attack them with axes, hammers, and homemade weapons, anything they can find. Nearby, Anna and the young women of the munitions factory hear the explosions. They're shocked. None had known today was the day. They learn later the Sonderkommando had no choice. An informant within the Sonderkommando had tipped off the SS. Anna peeks outside, trying to see through the choking dust. Crematorium number four and its adjacent gas chamber are leveled, crumbled to the ground. Anna can't believe it. This tiny ragtag group of resistance fighters has just done the impossible. They've blown up a crematorium at Auschwitz. The SS retaliate with brutal force. They kill 200 Sonderkommando that day alone, a devastating loss of life. An equal number initially escape into the woods, but are caught, tortured, and soon executed within days. Technically, the mission was a success. Crematorium number four was leveled, crippled, and permanently shut down. Never again would it reopen at Auschwitz. But over the next few days, Anna and the young women are holding their breath, devastated for the loss of their Sonderkommando allies, while silently elated that their daring exploits, planned and executed right under the noses of the Nazis, had paid off until they discover something altogether shocking. The Germans found the traces of the gunpowder on the ground. And what we didn't know, but they knew, is that apparently you can identify the gunpowder as coming from a specific place, and they identified that it came from Union Factory. Tracing it to the Pulveranum, the munitions factory the girls worked in, the leadership at Auschwitz began a massive search to uncover the precise source of the explosives. The girls knew they were in trouble. The SS brutally interrogates each of the girls separately. Anna is maniacally tortured, as are the other girls. But not one will share a single name. Weeks of brutal beatings continue. Finally, Clara, caught with a single crust of bread traced to a Sonderkommando goodie package, cracks under the pressure. She betrays Allah, giving up her name in early November 1944. Allah is beaten and tortured senselessly for days. Barely able to speak, she finally names Rosa and Astucia, Anna's sister. Allah, Rosa, and Astucia are taken to the notorious men's camp prison, known as the Bunker. The Bunker is under the control of a portly Jewish capo named Jakob. He supervises as they are tortured mercilessly for days. After three weeks, they are then scheduled for execution. Anna continues to hide in plain sight in the barracks, terrified that she will lose her sister and perhaps her own life. She is dragged in for interrogation by two SS officers, Maria and Ender. Maria is vicious and slaps Anna in the face. Ender pretends to be fatherly, but grills her for information. 
He swears to Anna that Astucia betrayed her and told him everything, trying to trick her to confess. But Anna knows better. Astucia would never betray her. Weeks later, Anna is released. She confesses nothing, not a single name. Surprisingly, three days later, Astucia, Ala, and Rosa are likewise released. Astucia is barely conscious, beaten head to toe. Anna is nonetheless thrilled to see her, but her joy is short-lived. After a few days, Astucia, Rosa, and Ala are taken again, and Anna once again fears that she's next. But Marta, a young woman who befriended Anna and Astucia at the camp, quietly signals to Anna she will protect her. Using a secret, high-level leadership contact within Auschwitz, Marta hides her in the hospital ward, known as the Riviere. She gets Anna put under the care of Dr. Slauka. Jakob, the capo of the men's prison, fancied himself a power broker, a celebrity in the jail. Though he could not stop young Anna from being brutally tortured and personally witnessed the beatings, he now feels compelled to help, as he had with other prisoners. Seeing her in desperate emotional pain over her sister, he secretly begins smuggling letters between Anna and Astucia. But Anna herself grows severely depressed. She stops eating. So Marta fights to keep Anna's spirits up, bringing details about Astucia. Marta was always coming, visiting me every day, and she was telling me that uh, everything is going to be okay. And she was trying to reassure me and tell me, apparently Jakob received an order to execute the girls, but he was stalling for time, and he refused. He had the power to refuse it. Jakob intervenes with contacts in Berlin to halt Astucia's execution. Auschwitz leaders, impatient for revenge, demand that he hang the girls, but Jakob delays further, insisting that Berlin must give direct orders for all executions. He's stalling, hoping to keep Astucia alive long enough for the advancing Russian Red Army to arrive at Auschwitz and liberate the camp. For weeks, Anna and Astucia wait with excruciating patience for any word from Berlin. Marta prepares to bribe Dr. Slauka for a desperate Anna to sneak out of the hospital to see Astucia. But in the end, it's not enough. Orders finally come down direct from Berlin. Execute the women. There's nothing that can save them now. Jakob smuggles in two final letters from Astucia, one to Anna and one to Marta. Astucia writes to both women, knowing it is her last communication. Her last letter that I got from Marta, she is saying that all hope is gone, that through her window of the cell she can see the feet of the prisoners that are coming back from work, that all the hated sounds of the camp life, the screaming for the soup and for the tea, that were so hateful to her, were so dear to her now, that all hope is gone and that she so much wants to live. Jakob brings a heartbroken Marta's response back to Astucia. Marta promises to her that she's going to take care of me. The day of the execution arrives. Marta knows Anna will not survive if she witnesses Astucia's death. Marta, the girl that saved my life, 
asked them to take me into the block during the execution. And I was inside while the execution was going on outside. A large crowd of Jewish prisoners are forced to gather and witness the execution. The four young women, Ala, Rosa, Regina, and Astucia, all emerge with nooses tied around their necks. Anna begs to watch, but Marta orders two young women to hold her down and keep her inside the barracks. Anna fiercely tries to struggle, desperate to see her sister one last time, but they do not, they will not let her see it. And Anna is spared watching her sister's execution. I heard this tremendous collective groan, and I knew that I lost my mind right then and there. The execution was on January 5th. She was just barely 20. And yet, out of the darkest period, hope. Two weeks later, the unthinkable happens. Auschwitz is evacuated. Marta carries a weak Anna as they are marched through an icy forest to the town of Neustadt Gliwe. There, Marta feeds, washes, hugs, and keeps Anna alive. She refuses to break her promise to Astucia. On May 2nd, 1945, the Russians liberate Neustadt Gliwe, freeing the remaining prisoners, including Anna and Marta. They are escorted off to the Americans. By June, 1945, Anna is sitting in the beautiful hills of the Ardennes in Belgium with Marta and a group of survivors hosted by the Belgian Jewish Community Organization. Within months, Anna reunites with Sabine, her eldest sister, and Sabine's husband. She begins the arduous plan to memorialize Astucia and the other women who successfully helped with the munitions rebellion at Auschwitz. On June 19, 1991, Anna and Marta stand in the memorial garden of the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, where a monument is dedicated to the memory of Astusha Wajblum, Ala Gertner, Rosa Robota, and Regina Safferstein, the four women executed at Auschwitz by public hanging for their participation in the rebellion. Sabine and Anna light the eternal flame in their honor. We honor the heroes of the past, heroes like Anna Heilman, by invoking their memory in the present. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and I am so excited for you to check out the series Hunters, streaming on Prime Video. If you're interested in learning more about the Auschwitz Revolt, please visit yadvashem.org, Y-A-D-V-A-S-H-E-M.org. Thank you to the USC Shoah Foundation. The interview of Anna Heilman is from the archive of the USC Shoah Foundation, the Institute for Visual History and Education. For more information, please visit sfi.usc.edu. Thank you to Mariah Films of the Simon Wiesenthal Center and the Museum of Tolerance. And a special thanks to Dr. Michael Berenbaum, Rick Trank, and Judy Friedman.
bring you the biggest prize you could imagine. One more run. And everything that we have done will have been worth it. We can't do it alone, so where are your friends? Evil doesn't retire, so why should we? This has to be perfect, like clockwork. Join us. Hunters, starring Al Pacino. Executive produced by Jordan Peele. Stream now on Prime Video. This podcast was narrated by David Weil, creator and executive producer of Hunters on Prime Video. It was executive produced by Jordan Peele, Stephen Hine, Natalie Williams, and David Weil. Produced by Netta Farshbaff, Keisha Center, and Sophia Williams. This episode is written by Dorothy Kozak-Snoke. The voice of the Nazi soldier is Jan Close. Voiceover casting by Daryl Eisenberg and Ali Beans. Associate producers are Rebecca Drucker and Hayda Holscher. Post-production and co-produced by Trey Booty. The podcast featured the original theme and score from the second season of Hunters, written by Rupert Gregson Williams. Chutzpah, Hunters Presents True Stories of Resistance, is produced by Prime Video, Monkey Paw Productions, and Story Mill Media. Mm-hmm.